This is Citations Needed with Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson. Welcome to Citations Needed, a podcast on the media, power, PR, and the history of bullshit. I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. You can follow the show on Twitter at Citations Pod, Facebook, Citations Needed, and become a supporter of our work through patreon.com slash Citations Needed Podcast. Our support through Patreon is incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener funded. Yeah, and as always, please uh, rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and please, if you can, subscribe and sign up to our Patreon. It helps keep the show commercial-free and the episodes themselves free to everyone. If you sign up for Patreon, you'll get special little mini-episodes, newsletters, we do AMAs, live shows, various little goodies we do for our patrons, and we absolutely appreciate the support there. So if you haven't supported us yet, we really, really ask that you do that. It helps keep the show sustainable and the episodes themselves free for everybody. Let the culture wars begin again, announced the New York Times. How the culture war could break democracy, warns Politico. As the culture wars shift, President Trump struggles to adapt, NPR tells us. Will Democrats go on the offensive in the culture wars, wonders Vanity Fair. Over and over, we're reminded that so-called culture wars are being waged between a simplified left and right. Depending on who you ask, they tend to encompass issues under broad categories, LGBTQ rights, abortion, funding of the arts, policing, immigration, and so-called family values. While there is some validity to the label of culture war, say Republican opposition to an art installation or tantrums over the gender of the green M&M, most of the time the term is woefully misapplied. Despite what much of the media claims, LGBTQ rights, police violence, abortion, and so many other issues aren't just culture war fluff in the same league as the latest Fox News meltdown about a cartoon character, nor are they both sidesable matters of debate. They're matters of real, material consequence, often with life and death stakes. So why is it that these are placed under the same culture war umbrella? And what are the dangers of characterizing them that way? On today's episode, we'll discuss the vague nature of the term culture war, how the lack of clarity is weaponized to gloss over and minimize life and death issues like police violence and gender reaffirming health care and immigration, and how the only consistent criteria for culture war seems to be those issues that impact someone other than the media's default audience of white professional middle class men. Later on the show, we'll speak with Max Alvarez, editor in chief of The Real News Network and host of The Working People podcast. His book, the Work of Living will be published by Or Books in the spring of 2022. This discussion about avoiding quote-unquote culture war issues and focusing on quote-unquote kitchen table or kitchen sink issues is posed as a neutral big tent strategy. You know, like how do we market ourselves in a way that brings the most people into this political coalition? And I think we have all acknowledged that like that is not the case. That's bullshit. What you were doing is you were making active choices about which constituencies matter more to you and which constituencies matter less. Anyone who, of course, who's watched any cable punditry or, or read any opinion pieces over the past 30 years or so has heard the concept of culture war over and over again. We're witnessing the newest evolution of the culture wars. We're gonna keep this culture war conversation going. Gay rights that are advancing around the country. Are the culture wars back in the midterms? Because again, people, this isn't about books, all right? 
This is about keeping the culture war going for political benefits. And I also think it is part of a little cultural war, not mm -hmm. little, but it's going on within the Democratic Party. The state in a constant culture war. Can't get distracted, whether it's by the latest culture war nonsense. I mean, the fact is, the culture war works to the benefit of Republicans. It's been doing it for 50 years. President Trump silent on all of this, but we're learning he continues to stoke culture wars and intends to do so tonight. CRT is not taught in K-12 schools, but it's nonetheless become the latest flashpoint in the country's culture wars. And coming up next for us, Republicans find new culture wars to fight. A base, you know, firing up a culture war event. Typically and increasingly, the concept of culture war, Nima, is something that is viewed as, again, it has a slippery definition, but broadly speaking, when someone hears culture war, this seems like something that is axiomatically trivial, that is automatically not really that important or something that is negotiable or can be transactioned with some other issue that is deemed of some importance. And what we found interesting about this term, and this is something that I, I wrote about on the Substack and we've talked about for some time now, is how the word culture war, the label culture war, kind of as the ultimate scope creep. It goes from being about things that may seem trivial or that we could say are trivial, like for example, some debate on college campuses about whether or not uh, bond me is cultural appropriation, something that sort of may seem a little bit esoteric or unimportant, to encompass things that are obviously important and affect millions of people, like the basic humanity of trans people or immigration or police violence. And we found that interesting how basically without much notice, the word culture war went from sort of piss Christ, which isn't to say its initial origins weren't about trivializing issues for non-straight white men. I mean, abortion was all has been long been called a culture war. We'll get into that. Gay rights were a culture war issue. How the basic rights, humanity, and dignity of people who, again, don't look like Adam Johnson are viewed as being somehow second of secondary importance, second class issues, and their culture, because culture sort of seems selective. It seems like you prefer rock music, I like country music, it's culture. I think culture has this notion of, it's just pop frivolity. It's the things that are kind of benign, unimportant, not like serious political issues, right? And so you get statements like this one recently from February 21st, 2022, from Slate writer Jordan Weissman, who tweeted this, quote, like, if we're really on the verge of total abyss, maybe Democrats need to offer some serious concessions on culture war issues that are fueling these conflicts in return for institutional reforms. Hoping Republicans take responsibility just because doesn't seem too wise, end quote. So it's this idea that why do Democrats and by extension left of center progressives, liberals, even leftists, why are these quote unquote culture wars sucking up so much of the political oxygen that should be spent dealing with what people like Jordan Weissman are saying are more important issues as if institutional racism and even the tearing down of say a Confederate statue, not that that's exactly what he's talking about, but he didn't itemize what he means by culture wars, which is actually part of the point that we're making here, Adam. I asked him, I said, can you list your top five culture wars you think that we should punt on? And he never answered. And <laughs> I know people <laughs> offline have asked him and he didn't answer either. Because culture war is supposed to encapsulate everything that whoever is using that term deems unimportant, unserious. And that can extend, as you've said, Adam, 
all the way from the gender of the green M&M to defunding the police. Right. So we should start by giving some history about where the concept of culture war comes from. The Our current understanding of culture wars really emerged in the late 80s and 90s, although technically one of its precursors for the term culture war was, uh, and forgive me if I'm butchering this, uh, German listeners, Kulturkampf, a German term for culture struggle that arose in 1870s Prussia. The term originally referred to the legal battle between the Catholic Church and the Prussian government under right-wing nationalist Otto von Bismarck for state power. It now commonly denotes a conflict between political factions or tendencies. But the way we understand it today, the term culture war would appear vaguely and occasionally throughout the 1970s and 80s in various contexts used by scholars in the fields of psychology, humanities, and others. But its meanings eventually began to coalesce, and usage of the term began to skyrocket in the early 90s, coinciding with the PC boom. Now, the term began making the rounds in news media in 1990 as neocons responded to actual cultural products, things like film, television, and art that they perceived as too transgressive. Now, in the mid to late 80s, the National Endowment for the Arts, the NEA, issued grants to multiple institutional arts programs. Part of these grants went toward funding the work of artists Andre Serrano and Robert Maplethorpe, both of whom produce imagery deemed obscene by lawmakers like Senators Jesse Helms and Alphonse D'Amato, as well as the Fundamentalist American Family Association, the AFA. Now, in 1989, Scott Tyler, a student at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, created an installation featuring a photo collage incorporating shots of flag-draped coffins and South Korean people burning an American flag, as well as an American flag on the floor extending outward from the wall. Now, Tyler, who later adopted the professional moniker Dred Scott, had not received NEA funding for his art installation, but was nevertheless lumped in with work that did, and much maligned by right-wing forces. This led to a series of calls to defund the NEA, couched in a more general panic over what this type of art actually represented. In a May 1989 column for the Washington Times, former Reagan White House communications director Pat Buchanan likened two of these exhibits to the Martin Scorsese film The Last Temptation of Christ, bemoaning that, quote, the downhill slide of American culture gathers momentum, end quote. Buchanan also quoted conservative art critic James Cooper, stating, quote, the war is raging on the battlefield of the arts within our own borders, end quote. And according to author Thomas Linloff, quote, this is one of the first times the war metaphor had been used in reference to disputes about a nation's culture. As the issue of rap music lyrics grew heated in 1989, especially with the release of Two Lives Crew's controversial album, As Nasty As They Want to Be, accelerated pressure on a major record companies to adopt uniform warning labels, and the AFA pressed its campaigns against advertisers sponsoring violent and indecent TV programs, the idea of a permanent warring split over the purposes and effects of pop culture began to take hold. So the next year, 1990, Republican Congressman Henry Hyde penned an influential essay in the National Review that stated this, quote, America is involved in a culture conf, a war between cultures and a war about the meaning of culture. By culture war, I don't mean arguments over the relative merits of Mozart and Beethoven, Henry V on stage and Henry V on screen, Eliot and Auden, Tom Wolfe and E.L. Doctorow. I mean the struggle between those who believe that the norms of bourgeois morality 
which is drawn in the main from classic Jewish and Christian morality, should form the ethical basis of our common life, and those who are determined these norms will be replaced with a radical and thoroughgoing moral relativism. That is the division in our house, end quote. Uh, yeah, note the sort of classic Judeo-Christian morality, which is really just Christian morality. They like to throw the Judeo so they don't seem like they're uh, being Christian supremacist. It gives it some sort of cultural continuity. Uh, we talked about that before. That's basically a code for the quote-unquote West or white supremacist institutions being morally superior. The Jewish part's kind of just thrown in there for good measure. They don't really care about Jewish culture. Now, later that same year, 1990, Buchanan was back endorsing Hyde's argument in his own syndicated column. Buchanan would subsequently become synonymous with this culture war framing, which we're going to talk about in a bit. But he wrote this in 1990, quote, There is method in this madness, the flag defiled, pictures desecrating symbols of Christ, use of kids as sex objects. These are designed not to challenge and stimulate, but to insult and inflame. But given that 90% of Americans are revolted, what kind of politics is it? Answer? It is not politics. It is war, cultural war, religious war. Desecrations of the flag are a way of saying America is filth. Sacrilegious art seeks to dethrone the God of Christianity, replacing him with the gods of the new pagan faith. The arts militants are defending Maplethorpe's pictures with all the ferocity with which early Christians defended their icons, end quote. The following year in 1991, James Davison Hunter released the book Culture Wars, The Struggle to Define America. Hunter is commonly credited with launching the term culture wars into popular lexicon. The book was a kind of precursor to the contemporary narratives of polarization in the U.S. It argued that starting in roughly the 1960s, religious conservatives, Christian fundamentalist, Orthodox Jews, and conservative Catholics were in conflict with secular religious liberals over issues like abortion, funding of the arts, women's rights, gay rights, and court packing, and proposed ways to turn those conflicts into enriching democratic debate. Hunter had thus laid the groundwork for the media framing of culture wars, that issues like abortion and LGBTQ rights were not urgents of material needs, the consequences of which could throw people into poverty because of getting fired or because they don't have access to their, they don't have control over their sexual faculties, were instead kind of abstract or intractable conflicts of cultural preference and cultural differences that can kind of be negotiated, not material mm -hmm. issues of economic security. Another one of the best known uses of the term followed the next year when Pat Buchanan spoke at the 1992 Republican convention, cementing the right-wing character of the culture war framing. Friends, this election is about more than who gets what. It is about who we are. It is about what we believe and what we stand for as Americans. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war as critical to the kind of nation we shall be as the Cold War itself. For this war is for the soul of America. And in that struggle for the soul of America, Clinton and Clinton are on the other side, and George Bush is on our side. That's some good red meat. That's some good red meat. <laughs> yeah. Also, Clinton and Clinton note, Hillary Clinton was not running for office. Never to be outdone, Bill Clinton got involved himself. That very same year, 1992, saw another high-profile event that would be framed as fodder for the culture wars. This was, during the campaign, Bill Clinton's condemnation of rapper Sister Soldier. 
On May 13, 1992, the Washington Post published what would become a much-cited and much-misrepresented interview with Sister Soldier after the Los Angeles uprisings of that year protesting the police beating of Rodney King. The rapper explained that the uprisings weren't simply senseless violence, as they were portrayed in the news media at the time, but a reaction to the violence that the state had long inflicted upon black people. Washington Post staff writer David Mills asked Sister Soldier about the uprisings. This is the exchange that was published. Mills asks, quote, even the people themselves who were perpetrating that violence, did they think it was wise? Was that wise, reasoned action? Sister Soldier responds this way, quote, yeah, it was wise. I mean, if black people kill black people every day, why not have a week and kill white people? You understand what I'm saying? In other words, white people, this government, and that mayor were well aware of the fact that black people were dying every day in Los Angeles under gang violence. So if you're a gang member and you would normally be killing somebody, why not kill a white person? Do you think that somebody thinks that white people are better or above and beyond dying when they would kill their own kind? Mills responds, I'm just asking what's the wisdom in it? What's the sense in it? Sister Soldier responds this way, quote, it's rebellion. It's revenge. You ever heard of Hammurabi's code? Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? It's revenge. I mean, that seems so simple. I don't understand why anybody would ask me that question. You take something from me, I take something from you. You cut me, I cut you. You shoot me, I shoot you. You kill my mother, I kill your mother, end quote. This was a flashpoint for Bill Clinton, who was a Democratic presidential candidate at the time. At a June 1992 event for Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition, Bill Clinton under the advice of James Carville, whose idea this was, condemned Sister Soldier for what he perceived as inciting violence against white people, and of course took one of her quotes out of context to illustrate the point. The statement, which became immortalized as a Sister Soldier moment, captured loads of media attention. Here's a clip of Clinton for some background of the clip. Sister Soldier had been part of the Rainbow Coalition panel the night before. You had a, a rap singer here last night named Sister Soldier. I defend her right to express herself through music. But her comments before and after Los Angeles were filled with the kind of hatred that you do not honor today and tonight. Just listen to this, what she said. She told the Washington Post about a month ago, and I quote, if black people kill black people every day, why not have a week and kill white people? So you're a gang member and you'd normally kill somebody? Why not kill a white person? Last year, she said, you can't call me or any black person anywhere in the world a racist. We don't have the power to do to white people what white people have done to us. And even if we did, we don't have that low-down, dirty nature. If there are any good white people, I haven't met them. Where are they? Right here in this room. That's where they are. I know she is a young person, but she has a big influence on a lot of people. And when people say that, if you took the words white and black and you reversed them, you might think David Duke was giving that speech. Mm, it's almost like context matters. It's almost like you can't just uh, reverse those. Hmm. So this moment was credited with shifting Clinton's candidacy. In October of 1992, the Chicago Tribune headline, 
wrote, quote, Bill Clinton's debt to the Hesista soldier. It read as follows. Tracking polls show the incident pretty much marks the upturn in Clinton's popularity that quickly turned him from third place behind Ross Perot to first, where he remained ever since. Sista soldier comes up repeatedly in surveys and focus groups the campaign conducts to measure the attitudes of white suburban and blue-collar swing voters. They are often called Reagan Democrats because many of them would have walked barefoot over broken glass to vote for the Gipper, but they might as well be called white flight Democrats, characterized by fear, wariness, or outright resentment of the growing influence of blacks and liberal advocates for the welfare poor and the democratic party so this wasn't a mere throwaway story it was a clear signal to clinton's rightward political leanings and related strategy to distance himself from any trace of social justice activism specifically black radical activism in uh, george hw bush's previous presidential campaign which he won he characterized michael dukakis as quote soft on crime of course he ran the infamous willie horton ad clinton capitulated to this attempting to court conservatives or he wasn't capitulating he was just racist during his presidential run, Clinton promised to, quote, end welfare as we know it and get tough on crime. His campaign staged a photo op with conservative Democratic Senator Sam Nunn standing in front of a line of black inmates before a Georgia boot camp. Clinton's proposed policies of public assistance would primarily affect black and Latino people. It's not a coincidence, then, that while in office, he passed a series of laws meant to expand the criminalization of African-Americans and reduce the efficacy of welfare. Over the course of the next decade, this culture war framing no longer referred to just conflicts between liberal arts provocateurs and Buchanan-style cranks. It really expanded into a vague catch-all term, encompassing everything from politicians' gripes about sitcoms to very serious political issues with extremely high stakes. News media ran with this framing, presenting issues like welfare, abortion, and gay rights not as clear moral issues, but as muddy, two-sided culture conflicts, simply matters up for debate, as opposed to having extremely real life and death stakes. Yeah, so throughout the 90s, gay rights issues were routinely defined as debates or culture war issues, as continually were abortion one headline from the Baltimore Sun from April of 2000, quote, Supreme Court joins nation's culture battles. Saving some of the hardest cases for last, the Supreme Court winds up its hearings for the term this week by returning to the nation's culture wars over abortion and gay rights. The abortion case centered on a Nebraska law that both sides refer to as a partial birth abortion ban. It's shaping up to be a test of whether or not the court will cut back on the right to abortion declared by the court in 1973 and kept largely intact by a 1992 decision. So again, whether or not women have control over their reproductive capacity is reduced to a culture war issue. It's yes, a, it's, it's, it's merely a culture war. It's culture war rather than being a material or economic one. This continued all the way up until today in the 2020s. So more than 20 years later, not much has really changed. New York Times in August of 2020, let the culture wars begin again. This piece argues that the 2020 Republican convention is looking strangely like the 1992 edition. The column by Jennifer Sr. of the New York Times wrote, quote, The 1992 Republican National Convention devolved into an atom-splitting culture war. Speakers decried the dangers of radical feminism, Hillary, the evils of socialism, Bill wanted health care for all, the depredation of the homosexual rights movement, Ted Kennedy was their Bernie, HRC was their AOC, the Los Angeles rights, also sparked by a videotape of active police brutality, were today's civil unrest. So culture war here includes police brutality, feminism, abortion, socialism is a culture war issue here too. <laughs> it's a culture war, I guess. Gay rights are culture war issues. NPR a couple months prior wrote, as the culture war shift, President Trump struggles to adapt. 
The article would write, no modern president has been as aggressive a culture warrior as Donald Trump. He announced his candidacy by accusing Mexican immigrants of being rapists. He criticized black athletes who knelt during the national anthem. He championed police officers, but promoted rough policing, telling law enforcement officers in a 2017 speech, please don't be too nice when making arrests. Recently, he announced over Twitter that he would never consider removing the names of Confederate generals over military bases. And so this is a theme you'll see again and again, where when the right engages in deliberately and explicitly racist rhetoric, it's dismissed as a culture war issue. So culture war issues work both ways. It's a way of diminishing left-wing identity-based oppression rights issues. And it's a way of glossing over, kind of making light of conservative, homophobic, sexist, and overtly racist rhetoric and policy. That same NPR article would go on to state this, quote, culture wars have been part of American politics for decades. Hot button issues like immigration, family values, and respect for the American flag can get a more powerful reaction from voters than dry debates over taxes or Medicare. But at a time when the country continues to deal with the COVID-19 crisis and economic recession and, above all, heightened levels of racial unrest, the culture wars are changing. And Trump, who has always relished a fight over white identity and culture, is struggling to adjust. White identity and culture. That is the most NPR thing I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) It's just white identity and culture, Nima. It's not racism. Well, that's the thing, that culture wars stands in for... Anything challenging to what this here is described as white culture? Well, that's the default issue. That's kitchen sink. That's economic issues. But any any form of economic oppression that doesn't fall along a kind of post-racial vector we view as being culture war, even if they have very little to do with culture. Well, things like, quote unquote, family values, politics, and immigration, those are not culture war issues, right? I I mean, those are actual, very serious. I mean, not that I I would say culture wars aren't serious, but used in this context to lump all of those under this umbrella term culture wars means that basically anything that isn't about like the national deficit or bombing another country is deemed culture war. Right. And so this happens every single time. It's clear that Democrats are going to either underperform or get their ass kicked in the midterms. Groups like Third Way and the D and Triple C, which are kind of the corporate funded wings of the Democratic Party, they leak these polls or these kind of messaging seminars or PowerPoint presentations where they basically say that the problem, the reason why Democrats are struggling is because of the far left. They do this every two years. It's Bernie, it's AOC, it's Russia, it's the whatever, it's the... Black Lives Matter more recently, defund the police as their now permanent boogeyman for the next six, seven, eight years. And so they released a poll on February 15th of this year, alleging that Democrats running for Congress needed to avoid so-called culture war issues. And I said, okay, well, that's interesting. What what are these culture war issues that they need to avoid? <laughs> how, do they, how do they define culture wars? And the only ones they list are police violence and immigration. They write, quote, when faced with the defund the police attack, for instance, DCCC officials encouraged Democrats to reiterate their support for the police. And on immigration, they said Democrats should deny support for open borders and amnesty and talk about the efforts to keep the borders safe. So obviously police reform and immigration, a meaningful police reform, not, you know, renaming police stations after Harriet Tubman, but like actual police reform, those are not 
culture issues. Those are economic issues that just happen to disproportionately affect black and brown people. But that does not make them culture issues. And so it occurred to me, and obviously we talked about this, that this is a trend that's been going on for some time, that immigrants don't travel up from Guatemala through Mexico, through hell, travel to the desert without water to seek economic opportunity because of a cultural whim. It's not a preference for jazz over country music. It's not a culture issue. Black people being pulled over by the police and thrown in jail because they had a a taillight out and losing their job the next day is not a cultural issue. It's an economic issue. That's a very real issue, obviously weaponized to great effect by Republicans by the right wing, by white supremacists and white nationalists to continue to create a certain kind of mythology about the United States and its founding and its history since. But it's not the same as just a culture war, right? This isn't some frivolity that maybe Democrats should stop worrying about CRT so we could get down to real politics, real business, because otherwise they're just giving, you know, fodder to the white suburban mom who's terrified about her kids' elementary school or high school curriculum. And those really aren't the same things as something benign that would be more appropriate under like a culture war moniker. Well, yeah, because the idea, the general assumption is that cultural issues are negotiable. It's not funding the military for $700 billion. It's not concerns over the deficit. It's not, you know, whether or not we should have a military base on every inch of the square planet. It's a culture. It's sort of not important. There probably is no more issue of recent note that is oftentimes portrayed as trivial than trans rights or the so-called trans bathroom issue, which since 2016 has been held up as this as the height of frivolity, as the height of kind of far left, whimsical, precious, selective interests that really doesn't affect Joe Kitchen Sink. You know, when he's sitting down after a hard day's work of punching the clock at the Sparks and Steam factory to come home and he sits on his couch and all he wants to do is suck down a beer and, and eat a steak. And But he's got to see those goddamn trans people in the latest Comcast commercial and it just fucking pisses him off. And why don't we just punt on that? So we can move on to the real issues of why we shouldn't withdraw from Afghanistan or other kind of important, sort of presumably important issues, right? And so trans issues, quote unquote, are routinely referred to as culture war issues. Uh, the Economist from November of 2017, making sense of the culture war over transgender identity. The subhead read as more people change gender, they spark a debate that enrages some and confuses many. The quote unquote trans bathroom issue was routinely dismissed as a cultural issue by Bill Maher by um, Mark Lilla in the New York Times. This was by David Brooks. And in 2019, Aaron Sorkin was on Fried Zakar on CNN, where he, he again referred to the trans bathroom issue as this kind of frivolous issue that really wasn't that important. There's a, uh, I think that there's a, a great opportunity here, now more than ever, uh, for Democrats to be the non-stupid party, uh, to point out the difference that, you know, we are, uh, that it's not just about transgender bathrooms. Um, that, that, that's a Republican talking point they're trying to distract you uh, with. Um, that, you know, we, we are, uh, that we haven't forgotten the economic anxiety uh, of the middle class, um, but we, we're, we're going to be smart about this. We're not going to be mean about it. Now, <laughs> to be charitable to Aaron Sorkin would be to take this quote to mean that he was rejecting Republicans' anti-trans cruelty. But 
I am not that charitable. And also, it seems pretty clear that the trans bathroom issue, as he defines it, is part of Democrats being stupid. And so this is, I think, a you know really good example of this idea of what is disposable? What are the dispensable issues? What are the things that progressives need to just kind of get over? Because they are being their own roadblock. They're creating, quote unquote, cultural issues that are obstacles to real progress. Taxes and deficits and the economy, the economy, jobs, right? Like things that Sorkin uh, you know, and granted he's a screenwriter, but I think it speaks to the framework for how the Democratic Party talks about politics, these things that he defines as, quote unquote, economic anxieties of the middle class. And we see this framed in cross-culture war over and over again. Uh, New York Times, March of 2021. Why transgender girls are suddenly the GOP's culture war focus. Reuters, uh, same month, same year. How transgender rights became the focus of the U.S. culture war. NPR, May of 2021, how trans rights bills evoke the culture wars of the 90s. New York Times, August of 2021, culture wars, the school culture wars, you have brought division to us, unquote. And so the idea is that, again, for the left, culture wars are viewed as something that's conditional and negotiable that we can sort of throw into the bus if it serves an immediate midterm electoral need or one we kind of assume exists. We, obviously, we don't know for sure if it does. When describing Republicans, it is a euphemism for, in this case, transphobia. So instead of saying why transgender girls are suddenly the GOP's culture war focus, it should say why transgender girls are suddenly the GOP's transphobic focus. It doesn't name the specific mode of hate. It says, oh, it's a culture war issue, an ideological preference versus hating people who are a certain identity. That framework also suggests that Republicans are merely weaponizing something unimportant, that they are creating a war out of something that really shouldn't be an issue at all, as opposed to framing it as they are inciting violence and hatred on purpose against entire communities of people for the explicit purpose of riling up their base or even getting new voters to you know come to their side because of these so-called culture wars. But they're not actually meaningless issues, which the culture war label suggests, they are actually incredibly important. And to speak to this more, we're now going to be joined by Max Alvarez, editor-in-chief of The Real News Network, a former editor at The Chronicle Review, and host of The Working People podcast. His book, The Work of Living, will be published by Orbooks this spring. We are joined now by Max Alvarez. Max, so great to have you back on Citations Needed. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back. So we are now talking about the uh, one of our favorite topics, which is the bifurcation, somewhat conveniently, of so-called culture issues or culture war issues versus economic issues. I don't think anyone's more qualified to talk about this false dichotomy more than you are. So pretty much the pattern goes a few months before each election, midterm or general election, especially when it's clear the Democrats are going to lose, as it is clear they're going to lose in November. There is an assortment of takes telling liberals on the left to compromise, quote unquote, compromise on these so-called culture war issues. Now, obviously, culture war has different meanings in different contexts. But a recent high profile example was the DCCC, which is the organization in charge of ostensibly getting Democrats elected to Congress, released a report that they're supposedly internally advising Democrats to concede on culture war issues. And if something like defund or police reform comes up to talk about how much they love cops, and if immigration comes up to talk about how much they are pro-securing the border. 
Now this threw me into a fucking fit. I wrote an article <laughs> about this because now we're saying sort of culture wars is basically code for, it has nothing to do with a superficial issue because obviously immigration and police reform are very much real material economic issues. Yeah. But it basically means something that is racialized or queerized for want of a better term that can be thrown under the bus to win over some ostensibly essential purple county voter. In your mind, when you hear the word culture war increasingly, what do you hear? I want you to sort of talk about how slippery this term is and how you perceive this kind of tick every few months to say, here's the shit we don't really need to take that seriously. Man, so this is one of those topics that like, I'm so glad that we're here having this conversation, but I feel almost overwhelmed because I'm like, I have so many things to yell about that I'm probably going to sound incoherent. I'm probably going to leave a lot of stuff out. So like, we'll see what we get. And all good. you're right. Like this is the kind of shit that we hear just perennially. I'm losing track of the number of times that we've had this exact same conversation. I want to respond to this question by first pointing out the obvious facts that Democrats and mainstream pundits love to forget. And in fact, they're what I think is very strategic forgetting becomes infectious. You know, it trickles out to us and we get swept up in the conversation that they want us to be having, not the conversation that we've been having for the past year and a half. And so I think it's important to start here because the obvious facts are that Democrats are in trouble because they have continuously broken the promises they made to voters who showed out in record numbers during a deadly pandemic to vote their asses into office in 2020. And what the Democrats are discussing right now ahead of the midterms, what this report about how to handle the midterms, what it says is that the Democrats need to find a way to repackage political cowardice as political strength. I think that this is not a strategy, right? This is just giving your opponent what they want and pretending like you want it more than they do. And Republicans are playing them like a fiddle. Republicans have always wanted to, quote unquote, solve most social and economic problems by throwing more money at police and policing the people who suffer from those very problems. For almost my entire lifetime, Republicans have figured out how to make sure that that's the result that they get, whether they're in power or not. Right. And like, mm -hmm. you know, this is the what it looks like when you have a party that is more committed to politics as a game of messaging as opposed to a game of improving people's lives, right? This is why they're so quick to drop those constituencies that you were mentioning before who are ostensibly represented by these quote-unquote culture war issues because that's what the Democrats have been doing. They're like locusts. They keep hopping from constituency to constituency to see who will buy their you know bale of goods this time around. And if anyone isn't buying them, they're not going to reflect inwards and say, well, maybe we need to do work harder to keep those voters. They're going to say, well, we don't care about those voters anymore. Well, because that's not an option. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're going to move on to the next group of people in the suburbs or wherever, and we're going to adjust our message to them. And we're going to keep sort of like anamorphing our way into something that could just eke across the finish line every two and four years. Yeah. Because one, one of the little scams, obviously, is that all these pieces begin from all these articles we've read, all the stuff we talked. We talked about this at the beginning of the show. They all start from the premise that these upwardly mobile white swing voters in the suburbs are the only movable voters because those voters' interests are a proxy for that of big donors in Wall Street. 
So it's this great little scam. You can't say we need to take this position because we need money from the same kind of big bundlers and corporate and everyone who works for the Democrats or a bunch of consultants who want to rotate through corporate America. So you find the demographic that's the closest proxy for those interests. And then that becomes the thing we always have to win over, even though statistically speaking, voters disillusioned with quote unquote defund, which is all they ever fucking talk about are not necessarily any more than voters who are disillusioned with a lack of passing the child tax credit or passing the Build Back Better bill or protecting the environment. But only one becomes this kind of holy grail swing voter because their interests are aligned with the interests of the party elites themselves. I think that's exactly right. Again, and kind of, and again, proves the point is that this discussion about avoiding quote unquote culture war issues and focusing on quote unquote kitchen table or kitchen sink issues is posed as a neutral big tent strategy. You know, like how do we market ourselves in a way that brings the most people into this political coalition? And I think we have all acknowledged that like that is not the case. That's bullshit. What you were doing is you were making active choices about which constituencies matter more to you and which constituencies matter less. And I think that in the piece that you wrote, Adam, you made in many ways the crucial point about this, right, which is that the things that this report points to, particularly like immigration and police reform and discusses those as, quote unquote, culture war issues is absolutely batshit insane to me, because what is like culture worry about these? These are brick and mortar institutions. These are entire systems that are run and designed to police people and you know the ask the people who are being policed whether or not how much money police get and what that money goes towards is a quote unquote culture war issue. And I'm speaking to y'all from Baltimore, where we cover this extensively, both in the city of Baltimore, we have, you know, a vertical called Battleground Baltimore, where we're constantly kind of focusing on all the ways that the city and even the state just keep throwing bad money after good at the police. And Governor Larry Hogan is out here, you know, he's trying to run for president in 2024. So he's out here trying to make political hay out of this quote unquote, refund the police campaign. When as right like Brandon Soderbergh had pointed out, it's like the police were never defunded here. In fact, they got more money. And in fact, the crime like did not go down. So like, where is all this coming from? But it gets even deeper than that, right? You know, as you guys have talked about brilliantly so many times on this show, as I've tried to talk about elsewhere, the whole system of policing, right, is our society's go-to pain management response that we use to treat and neutralize the symptoms of a broken economic and social order because we refuse to actually address the root causes of that. So like the very nature of policing is economic. It is tied like a snake eating its tail. It's like the more economically disadvantaged people are, the fewer opportunities there are, the fewer resources there are for them to live comfortable, fulfilling, dignified lives, the more that they are going to commit the kinds of crimes that are more heavily policed by police departments like the ones here in Baltimore. And they're going to be shuttled into prisons and it's going to just keep feeding this cycle that we've seen not work for decades and decades. And, you know, this is like something that the police accountability report host Stephen Janison, Taya Graham cover every week on their show and the real news. They talk about the political economy of policing and they've been showing how it's not just in the cities. It's in rural counties like there's one in West Virginia they've been looking at where you see how this sort of like basically poor township 
is relying on the police to generate revenue for the city. And the police are effectively fleecing residents and any people who are unfortunate enough to pass through. Like they're taking them by the ankles, turning them upside down and shaking everything out of their pockets. And that's where those resources are going. And as you pointed out in your piece, Adam, like if you are someone who's on your way to your job and you get stopped and you get sucked into this Kafka-esque prison industrial complex, your entire economic existence is going to be turned topsy-turvy. But it doesn't just stop there. We can actually look tangibly and non-culturally right at other examples like how in Alabama, the state used $400 million in federal COVID relief funds to build more prisons. So like, just like with police and with the prison system, all that money is money that is not going to other areas of need. And so like in that way, when you're talking about defund the police and it's turned into this sort of media spectacle, back and forth, culture war, BS discussion, we completely lose sight of the fact that it's like, no, like we are channeling resources to those things. We are taking resources away from the people who desperately need them. And the people who are left to flounder as a result of that are the very constituencies that the Democrats right now are saying, well, they're not our target demographic right now. Well, I mean, I think part of the issue is, as you've been talking about, Max, like, it's not even about trying to police our way out of poverty, that trying to make fewer people impoverished or living precarious lives is not actually the goal, right? So it's like, it's just pumping more money into these police and surveillance engines, because as you also brought up, being policed and surveilled to death isn't assumed to be part of quote unquote white American culture. So therefore, those who are policed and surveilled to death, that's just part of some alien culture we learn. So then it becomes fodder for a culture war. And so where I kind of want to take this conversation though is to this idea of nostalgia, because even saying culture war has this kind of romantic sense that there was a time when we all shared culture and typically, you know, this kind of monocultural moment, whether it's like Ed Sullivan or whatnot, like is clearly before the popularization of the term culture war, which really started in like 1991 and the subsequent then PC 90s. But this idea that the 80s or before that, the 50s were a time of broad consensus, right? This lack of quote-unquote polarization, and that people largely agreed on a shared reality is in itself this manufactured history. So, Max, I'd love for you to talk about this kind of nostalgia piece from the time before culture consumed us all. What does this mean in effect, right? Like, what are the causes that this kind of nostalgia trap purposefully sideline. I'm glad that you uh, mentioned that because I was going to say we've got to shout out my boy David Parsons because this is a classic nostalgia trap. Great podcast. Everyone should check it out. But it is a nostalgia trap, right? Because like, you know, I, I didn't think about it necessarily in these terms before we got talking, but I guess I'm, I'm going to vamp a little bit because I think it's a really interesting thread to tug on because where I'll end up in the conversation before we wrap up is kind of, again, the commentary on like pop culture as it exists today in the digital ecosystem that we have and the kind of weird metapolitics that have emerged from that. But if you're looking backwards, we've always had some form of this type of culture war thing. 
it's just taken a lot of different forms. And I think that one of the most consistent forms that you see it take is what you just described, Nima, is it is a perennial mechanism for creating an other that is always threatening to take what's yours. I think that that is like the DNA of culture wars in the United States, whether it was the yellow peril, right? I mean, you can go back and look at like cartoons drawn of Chinese immigrants, you know, and freed slaves or Mexicans, you know, like coming to take farm jobs, right? We always still adopted the same sort of chessboard in the culture war in the past by otherizing these quote unquote barbarians at the gates, these sort of other alien beings who were in some way threatening our ways of life. And that galvanized us to certain political ends, often very ugly ones, but it's never not been there. It's whether it was the Irish, whether it was Native Americans, or like I said, whether it was Chinese immigrants, whether it was women voting, right? For Christ's sake, it, it, I think like in that way, if you look at it in that historical perspective, culture wars have always been, if not manufactured, then always stoked by interested parties that have a very vested interest in keeping working people at each other's throats. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, I've been guilty of this before. I think I've said maybe once or twice on Twitter, like, look, Tucker Carlson is now doing culture war shit. And that's such a gross euphemism. And I actually sort of think that isn't should be described because everything I would ever consider Tucker Carlson talking about culture war shit is some stoking racism, transphobia, homophobia. Like, these are specific forms of demagoguery and incitement against vulnerable populations. Culture war in some ways kind of flattens that. It says, oh, this is all just kind of a, this frivolous other thing, which is why the slipperiness of the definition, which we've dissected now to death, but you can get to a point where people say, oh, well, Democrats need to just punt on culture war stuff. And it sort of seems sensible. But culture war is just allow entire communities to to just die and it's like well abortions because the abortion was the is the classic culture war issue every single discussion of culture war we talked about this again a bunch they say abortions culture war it's like women having control of their sexual faculties is probably the most urgent economic issue for women so if that's culture war and the fate of millions of largely latino immigrants is culture war and black people's relationship with the carceral state is culture war, then how am I not supposed to get to a point where culture war is just a word for identity-based oppression that is extremely economic in nature that doesn't affect people who look and sound like Adam Johnson? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just a proxy for shit that doesn't affect straight white guys. It's a proxy for anything that isn't like the Dow Jones average, right? Right. No, I think you're exactly right. I guess like, again, even if we evacuate the various iterations of these quote unquote culture wars of their content and just look at their form, that's really what they are designed to do. They are designed to be a process by which we determine whose lives and needs and concerns are not important. If we subsume something into a culture war, then we determine which side we're going to kind of lean into. Or we say, like, you know, none of this is a political concern, and thus we have come up with an effective way to drop entire constituencies. And this is, like, why I think that a big part of the problem that we're trying to discuss is that we only tend to discuss that problem as it exists in 
the realm of electoral politics. And so we start taking the terms of electoral politics as the end all be all of this issue. And I'll explain what I mean. One of the, I think kind of, you know, I'm going to die on this hill, but I keep beating, you know, this dead horse of late. But I think that one of the reasons so many working people are so exhausted and fed up with electoral politics is because by definition, it does not provide us with pathways to finding collective solutions to our problems. Again, that is not the nature of the system. The nature of the system is to split us up, to pit us against one another, to put us in competing camps that are in this perpetual tug of war over power and, you know, like are, are constantly trying to get it back if we ever lose it. Right. But like, again, we are not the famous Twitter adage that culture wars are not meant to be won. They are meant to keep going. And that's effectively what they do. And I think that after a while, if people get invested in those things and they see how much that energy dissipates into nothing and how much their actual concerns are taken advantage of by a political establishment that just wants to control its realm of government or what have you for a certain amount of time, then you're going to kind of give up on that system altogether. And this is why I think it's important to think about these quote unquote divisive culture war issues in other arenas like the labor movement. I think that there are a lot of instructive and hopeful things happening in the labor movement, even though the organized labor movement is at its kind of lowest ebb in many, many decades. Union density is at its lowest point in you know a long, long time right now. So there's a lot to be not hopeful about. But that's also why it's important to think about how is like the labor movement approaching these quote unquote culture war issues. Because the labor movement, and this is like something that organizers tell me all the time and some workers tell me all the time, the labor movement will die if it does not come to actual solutions on these quote unquote culture war issues. Because the labor movement needs to grow. It needs to find ways to bring younger people in. It needs to find ways to expand into non-white populations, people who are working different types of jobs, who speak different types of languages, who face different challenges on the shop floor, right? I've spoken to a trans pipe fitter on a shipyard who talks about the need to create a sort of working environment in which she can be herself and her co-workers can be safe and all of them can fight for what they need and they deserve. That's not a culture war issue. That's not a divisive issue. That is how do we as a workforce figure out how to band together and come to a solution so that our co-workers are accepted, that we maintain our power as a collective union or as just a collective workforce? These are not sort of the kind of pick and choose issues that they appear to be in our electoral politics and in our media every time a midterm election comes around. These are life and death issues for a movement that absolutely needs to resolve them in order to build power for working people and to grow the movement that we need to see in this country. That also applies to discrimination on the job, harassment on the job. Again, like these are not divisive culture war issues. Yeah. I mean, it has so much to do with this siloing of identity, right? This idea that there are quote unquote workers over here, but then those same workers aren't also trans or black or women or immigrants, right? That it's just, there's this made up worker, quote unquote worker, which is, you know, the hard hat wearing 
white guy with a handlebar mustache who like somehow is divorced from all other culture, isn't harassed by cops, which chances are he also is, right? So it's like even the term culture war, like is itself dismissive by definition. It's supposed to be this thing that is less important because it doesn't affect quote unquote real people. And so that's the way that you get to, you know, scare politicians by saying they've gone too far when they haven't gone fucking anywhere. And so you start pulling all this back and you get to this assumed default voter, right? This like, who is that fake default voter and why must they always be appealed to and how somehow are their interests exactly the same as capital and have nothing to do with the varied identities of how people are workers and also parents and also immigrants and also grandchildren and also black or trans or, uh, you know, indigenous. And like all of these things kind of work together so that you get this like dismissing anything that actually might affect people's lives unless those people like have stocks that they're really paying attention to. Can we talk about how like that kind of definition of who people are is used so much in political commentary to just like skirt all real issues and like sweep them up into this idea of like, that's just a culture war, and you're not talking about the real kitchen sink bread and butter issues. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think that you can, again, like it's so easy for the political establishment and for pundits in, you know, corporate media outlets to spin this into a never ending conversation if they never actually fucking talk to workers once in their life. Right. Or if they do, they just find the one Joe, the plumber guy, you know, like who's been kind of vetted to say like, oh, yeah, this guy's got the message mm -hmm. that we want. And this is like, you know, a very, very long and big problem that we have, you know, in our political culture where I always feel bad kind of making this point to folks because it feels like such a lazy and obvious one, but it's one that we seem to always forget. But we're living in a very big goddamn country, right? <laughs> we're talking about hundreds of millions of people on any job site. You're going to have the, you know, annoying ass troll the libs Trump voter. You're going to have yeah. the blue haired progressive person. Again, the point is, is that unlike in politics, in movements like the labor movement or in other realms of organizing, you actually have to find ways for those people to come together and find common solutions to their problems. Again, in electoral politics, you absolutely do not have to do that. You just keep playing this kind of shuffle where you have that cookie cutter and you wait until you find the person who fits it. And then you use them as a political prop for as much as you possibly can. Then you drop them like a bad habit when they no longer serve your needs. There are two examples that I would point to. One is on the right. Every election year, for as long as I can remember, Republicans, I guess at least since Al Gore came out with an inconvenient truth, that's when it became like more of a thing, I think. But every year since then, every time there's an election, Republicans love going to coal country, whether they're in West Virginia, whether they're in Kentucky, whether they're in Alabama. They love talking to the humble coal miner as this kind of perfect avatar. A lot of them are conservative, right? You know, they, they seem like that perfect archetype of someone working in the roughneck trades who embodies that sort of grit that we love to idealize in the American spirit. So I've been seeing this. We've all been seeing it pretty much every election cycle that for as long as we can remember. Since April 1st, 11 
hundred coal miners at Warrior Met Coal in Deep Red, Alabama, have been on strike against a company that has screwed them over, that forced them into a shitty contract when their previous company went bankrupt, and that promised them that they would get a better contract if they could turn that mine around, which the workers did. Before the pandemic, they had made that mine more productive than it ever had been. And then when the next contract negotiations came up, Warrior Met wanted to take more from these workers. These workers who say, we never get to see our families. We are working seven days a week, nearly a mile underground, and we only have like two points on our report card. So like if we go and see our wife in the, in the hospital, that's a point off of our tally and we could end up losing our job. Where has right-wing media been? They've had almost a year to make this an issue. They've had almost a year to show their actual support for the humble coal miner. And they haven't said shit. And this is like where you really see that lie, because I don't want to make it seem like I'm just bashing Democrats here. I am tired of all politicians and all pundits using working people as political props to advance their own agenda and then showing at the slightest sign of trouble how quickly they will drop them, how little they actually care about their lives. Because that's the scam. They pit this false dichotomy both ways because when Bernie Sanders was talking about Medicare for all and and uh, you know jobs guarantee and free college, they'd say, oh, well, he's not going to solve racism. And then literally these same pundits literally turn around the second all the quote unquote economic populism falls by the wayside and they say let's why don't we just turn up the racism dial a little bit i mean again the dtc lists two fucking topics in that entire politico article one of them immigration one of them reform the police are we going to sit here and act like that's not racialized and that's what made clinton's 2016 campaign such a whiplash when she just adopted all this non-profit kind of anti-racist speech because in 2008 when she ran against obama she did the exact opposite she constantly remember hard-working real white americans remember that so again it's this game they play off each other. And I, want, and I want to talk a bit about something that I think plays to that same scam, which is this, after the 2016 loss, so many people, I kept a list actually, David Brooks, Mark Lilla, Bill Maher, it was everybody, even I think Freddie DeBoer, they blame the loss on trans bathroom issues. This is trans. There's always a parenthetical trans rights to this. And I feel like we'd have to, I, I feel like we have to talk about that because when people talk about culture war issues that we should punt on or, or, or dismiss, trans issues come up. And as you know, Max and, and your work, trans people are disproportionately poor. They're just, you know, it's not a significant percentage of the population, which everyone always points out. But then again, if we throw people under the bus because they represent a minority of the population, that then what are we fucking doing here, right? Oh, you, you, sorry, you're not statistically relevant enough. Go fuck yourself. That they're disproportionately more likely to be homeless. They're more likely to be at risk. They're more likely to make money in the informal economy, right? And so this is from a labor organizing perspective, albeit, again, a, not the sizable chunk of the population, but this is a working class constituency that is oftentimes treated like some kind of boutique nonprofit liberal issue. And these are the people you need to be recruiting if your job is to create a working class coalition. And then there's the secondary issue of why would I go to bat for an organization or a movement or a labor union that's going to sell out trans people at the drop of a hat because there's some consultant did some calculus that says, oh, we can pick up five votes in Fairfax County. And I think that this constant debate about what demographic we're going to fucking throw under the bus because of some midterm electoral process, I, it really breeds cynicism. I mean, I think it breeds a lot of cynicism. And I think that this idea that, because again, I think you get to the issue of, is this a bread, you know, they say, oh, are pronouns really that important to the quote unquote average American? Well, we can teach the average American. Then guess what? They'll get over it, just like they got over gay rights 10 years ago. 
and you can recruit trans people into your movement. Because why would I join a movement if my basic humanity and basic identity is going to be constantly demeaned and trivialized? Like, that's what I don't understand. And I think people who, again, I know, Max, you've come up with this a million times. I don't want to act like I'm sitting, sitting here like the working class whisperer. I'm a fucking podcaster. I don't have a real job. But we constantly hear people talk about, well, you know, if you talk about the pronoun stuff, it's going to alienate people. And it's like, you know, maybe in some context, but that's what political education is. And for all the thousands and thousands of trans people or even just millions of queer people in general, why would I want to be part of your movement if you're going to be so fucking glib and dismissive of something that I've told you is important to me? Mm -hmm. And that's extremely easy to learn about. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing I keep coming back to is that like anyone who's trying, you can't organize a fucking Starbucks union and be like, oh, fuck your pronouns. I mean, that would be impossible. These are workers. These are workers that are easily unionized and there's fucking millions of them. Right. I mean, I think um, it was Michael Brooks, rest in peace, who said on my show about Adolf Reed, right? That one of Adolf Reed's like favorite quotes is like, what organization in, in America has the largest number of trans members in its ranks? It's like collectively the AFL-CIO, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so like, you know, I, I get the point that Michael and Adolf are, are trying to make there, right? Which is kind of the point that you're making here, Adam. Is like, well, they're human beings, right? I mean, again, like I'm losing my goddamn mind here because essentially the conversation that we're having is which human beings are we going to throw under the bus? Which human beings are we going to sort of sacrifice on the altar of whatever brand of normalcy we want to hold up? And again, we're holding that brand of normalcy up for a party to win an election and then squander its goodwill and then like be back in the same goddamn position. So it's like, we're not, not that there's ever a good reason to sacrifice, you know, people in this way. But when you look at like what we're actually sacrificing one another for, that's when you really get that pit in your stomach. And you're like, Jesus, is this what the political culture has become? Is this what we have become? And I think that that's like really where this conversation sort of signals the much larger problem, right? Was that like, this is kind of what people are reduced to in such a sick political culture where human life is valued so little. And, you know, like this sort of way of understanding society as this kind of constantly rearranging chessboard in, for what is for most people, a sort of sport. Right. I mean, like it may be a high stakes sport, but politics for a lot of people is a sport that you engage with through your phone, through your computer screen. Before they go work at Uber or or Walmart or as a PR consultant, they don't give a shit. Yeah. The party's run by total fucking sociopath. Right. And, And going back to your original point is that like, well, it's very much not a sport for the people whose lives are going to be directly impacted by the decisions that you're making right now. And yeah, if like we cannot even talk about because the Democrats will go back to them. They're always saying like our democracy depends on this. Our, Our future depends on this. And that's why we need you to vote. It's like, okay, well, like if that is really the case, then why are we not trying to bring in as many people as possible? Why are we trying to take this sort of narrow view where we can, you know, carve out just enough of a critical mass of people who are willing to, you know, punch a hole in a card come November and leave everybody else by the wayside? Like this is, I think, like what is really just sort of baffling to the point where I'm almost losing my words, but it really is that that simplest thing. Like, well, you know, 
all of these people are human beings who don't deserve to be treated with such disregard, who don't deserve to like have their basic humanity. And really, that's what we're talking about here is like, do we have a society in which the humanity of you know people is recognized to the point that they could just live their damn lives, right? Whether we're talking about disabled people, queer people, people of color, poor people, the case time and time again is no, that's the goddamn problem. Mm -hmm. The problem is not how do we sort of like carve, like gerrymander some weird Frankenstein's monster constituency out of this broken society and make that seem like it's some sort of win when it's really not. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's all built on the assumption and the insurance that the balance of power will never shift. And so I think that the idea of who holds a, you know, monopoly on power, you know, and that's kind of couched into what you mentioned earlier, Max, this idea of, oh, it's a, if other people, other communities, other identities have their own ability to wield power, that is going to be a threat to my way of life, which is really just a threat to a monopoly on power. And this idea that everything is kind of in service to we, quote unquote, like, the white American male who is assumed to be the only, you know, kind of important constituency has treated everyone so terribly that if anyone else gains power in some kind of parody at all, that the white American male will be so under threat that, like, they will have to experience what they have done to the rest of the world for so long. And I think that's such an animating horror that is turned into like, you know, so we have to dismiss it as something that is purely like this, like cultural battleground and not about anything quote unquote real. Right. I just wanted to make this point about the monopolization of power. Right. Because I think that that's the one thing that's been missing from the conversation so far, because I think that we have rightfully pointed out that the way that the political and media establishment talks about, quote unquote, culture war issues is such bullshit for all the reasons that we've laid out here. Right. It's not just culture. Right. What does culture mean? What does it serve to have a culture war where the end result is whose needs and concerns are going to get dropped and which constituency are we going to celebrate and, and value this election cycle? Yada, yada, yada. Now, on the other side. There are other ways that people, working people, people in the middle class, people in the upper class think about culture wars. That isn't just what the Democratic like uh, consultants are describing it as. And I think this is something that we on the left need to understand because certainly not all people, but a lot of people hate, quote unquote, culture war issues because they hate the ways that these issues manifest in our political and popular culture, right? They hate the version of it that they see. And in fact, we hate a lot of the same things. And I think there's a there's, there's an opportunity for us to kind of point out that like, yeah, like that is a culture war thing and it sucks. And here's how we should address it. And like what I mean by that is that one of the reasons that I think we do focus on cultural issues so much, right? Like, cause the, 
We just saw it with, you know, the latest like uproar about Joe Rogan. That was a culture war issue. Everyone was getting involved. Everyone was kind of trying to influence the conversation and everyone was trying to kind of, you know, like have a hand in shaping the situation as it unfolded. And then everyone was kind of, you know, saying, oh, we need to we need to defend Joe Rogan at all costs or we need to do this. We need to do that. Cancel cultures out of control. And again, we were kind of missing the point including on the left where people were saying like, oh, if we if we say we want Joe Rogan censored, then we're going to be sorry, you know, when it comes after us. It's like, motherfucker, it's been coming after us. Like, again, you're missing the point. I think the point is that one of the reasons that so many of us on the left, on the right and elsewhere focus so much of our energy on the realm of online discourse or just discourse in general or popular culture is because it is one of the few, if not the only realm of life where it feels like we still have some pathetic modicum of power to shape the world that we have to live in. Right. You know, when no one has any power, when they're dealing with their bosses or their landlords, their politicians or the private companies that they purchase from, we naturally gravitate and and channel our energies toward the few realms where it does feel like we have, again, some modicum of power to influence and shape the world that we live in. And for a lot of us, that means trying to exert our will by trying to build and assert some kind of power in culture, in in discourse, in the stuff that we're all seeing and talking about. This is what Trump gave to so many people, right? Trump spoke to the disempowerment of a lot of people, right? To this feeling that a lot of people genuinely felt, you know, in especially in the economic realm, but not only the economic realm, that like, you know, you are powerless. You have had power stolen from you and you feel it, you know it. And what Trump offered was not a legitimate form of actually empowering working people, whether that be in their workplaces, whether that be in the political arena. What he offered them was a mirage form of power in the cultural realm, right? He offered them, and he was the tip of the spear, right? He was saying, use me to exert power over your neighbors, over your coworkers, over people you hate online, right? Even just wearing the Donald Trump hat in a supermarket, you can see the visceral effects that it has on people. And like, again, when you have so little power elsewhere. Yeah, because this, again, right-wing culture war is just racism. Like (laughs) It's racism, but it's power. It is power over people. Yeah, it's racism that gives you a sense of power that you don't otherwise have because you're you are powerless. But you know that you go to bed at night, you know you triggered the libs. That's why he he tweeted about Colin Kaepernick in the middle of his fucking presidential race that September and October of 2016 when the whole you know thing was going on because it's fucking red meat and he himself genuinely believes it. It's not an act, but it, yeah. It's- well, and this is this is what I mean when I just say that like um, that people hate the culture war for those reasons, because it's not like when I hear a lot of workers kind of tell me that like they don't like this or that culture war thing, they're almost never talking about what the three of us would be talking about. Right. We're not they're not talking about the politics of representation. Right. And, and you know, they're not talking about social justice in the terms that we were we would be. They're talking about how goddamn annoying it feels for them to watch makeup commercials during a football game that are just so ridiculously draped in social justice buzzwords or Amazon commercials or the fucking House Democrats kneeling in kente claws. That's what they see as culture war stuff. And again, when you have so little power over anything else, that feels like a 
landed blow. It feels like someone on the dominant side of culture is exerting that power over them and they want to push back. And so I do think, you know, that it is important right to understand that that is what the culture war means for a lot of people no that's why it's such an effectively slippery term because you know, on one hand they'll say culture war is like some oberlin sophomore saying bond me as cultural appropriation and you're like okay yeah then maybe that's a little silly or frivolous and then well, then they'll pivot to immigration or police reform or something that's like wait or abortion or gay rights and it's like those aren't trivial at all those are really important. That's that's part of what makes me fascinated by the term is it, it sort of means whatever you want it to mean. It kind of means anything that's vaguely racialized with various degrees of actual concrete importance. While also serving as a gateway to the actual power wielding parts of politics. We were talking earlier about how anti-trans rhetoric, violence is such a common gateway into more right-wing politics, right? That like, that's this, this like, it's a way in, it's easy and it's visceral and it's disgusting and it allows, I mean, we've seen this with, you know, you brought up Joe Rogan, right? We've seen this, how it's like an entry point. It's like this kind of like, it seems almost like a, eh, whatever. There's like three trans people. So who, who are you really offending? Right? Like, and so because of that kind of narrative, that ugly, violent narrative, it also allows people to then go deeper into, you know, I guess what they would say, past culture into kitchen sink politics. Right. And and so I, th I agree with all of that. And I guess the only other thing I would add is, again, like when quote unquote culture war issues that we as we've said, like they're actually real human stakes for what we call these culture war issues. And, you know, people, real flesh and blood people with lives and families and needs and wants and dreams are going to be hurt by us, you know, deciding that they are not worth, you know, our consideration. All those sorts of concerns are sucked up into this sort of simulation manufactured by the media and political establishment. And that is what the culture war looks like to a lot of people. So when it just looks like commercials that are more inclusive, when it looks like the military having a rainbow flag on its planes, right? When it looks like the Democrats kneeling after, you know, like another black person is murdered by police and doing nothing. All it's going to look like to you is just the people with the monopoly on power sort of adopting the window dressing of one side's concerns without addressing those actual concerns. So everyone's pissed off. The right's pissed off because they feel their, you know, version of culture is, is being stifled and yada, yada, yada. And the left is pissed off because we're saying, well, like, no, that's not what we want. We don't want this to be a costume that people in power wear and say that like, oh, we're being like social justice-y. So everyone's getting pissed off because again, that monopoly on power is not changing and culture, the realm of culture is like one of the few areas where we're allowed to sort of fight over it because we realize that um, when it comes to actually structurally changing the sort of society in which these things matter, the people with the death grip on power are not going to allow us to do that. Before we let you go, Max, we've kept you here for a while, but before we let you go, please do tell us about the book that you have coming out. Word on the Street is uh, your book will soon be published. Uh, but tell us, Max, about your upcoming book, The Work of Living. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. The book I'm really proud of. So this time last year, at what was then the height of the COVID-19 pandemic before the Omicron surge, 
I conducted a series of intimate, deep interviews with working people around the country, not just about their jobs, but about their lives, you know, and their experiences of living and working and fighting through this year when it seemed like the world itself seemed to break apart. And, you know, I think that, you know, everyone, as I say all the time on my show, Working People, as I say again and again in this book, you know, like no two people's stories are the same because no two people are the same. And so it's, but when we, we are already seeing it as we move on into this new reality where what used to shock and horrify us about COVID-19 and our catastrophic governmental and market responses to it becomes commonplace when we just start accepting that as the new normal you know it's going to be all that more important to look back and to see that sort of human record of how we thought and felt what angered us what kept us alive what small acts of kindness and solidarity made the past two years bearable for us like that's the real raw human stuff that we're already forgetting as we kind of enter the third year of the COVID-19 reality. And so I was truly honored and humbled to have the opportunity to put this book together for Or Books. I spoke to a whole lot of amazing people who I could never thank enough, you know, including Nick, a, a grave digger in New Jersey, Willie, a gig worker in Texas, uh, Mix Pucks, uh, a burlesque performer in uh, Seattle, Kyle, a sheet metal worker in Louisville. And so I think that, you know, it's not it's by no means a, a sort of demographically representative, all encompassing book, you know, with everyone's experiences in it. You know, there are 10 people in there who I think really give heartfelt and amazing and beautiful stories about their experience living through the COVID-19 pandemic. And as always, I hope that people listen to their fellow workers, because I think we'll learn a lot from each other if we do. And we will build kind of more solidarity with one another if we actually give each other that gift of listening to each other and, and honoring one another's humanity, as I've tried to do in this book, which you can get at Or Books, or if you want to order it through your local bookstore, um, you know, that's great too. Uh, if you need to order it from Amazon, that's, you know, I'm not going to hate on you for that. Um, but <laughs> if you can order it from an independent bookseller. That is a great place to leave it. We have been speaking with Max Alvarez, editor-in-chief of The Real News Network, host of the Working People podcast. His book, The Work of Living, will be published by Or Books in the spring of 2022. Pre-order it now. Max, thanks again for joining us today on Citations Needed. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I think it's incumbent upon the quote-unquote left, or I hate to sort of say lofty sentences like that, to show how these quote-unquote culture wars are actual material or economic issues that impact people's well-being and, and livelihoods. They're not ideological, whimsical ideological preferences. Again, if I'm subject to discrimination as a trans person, if I can't find a job, if I'm humiliated on a daily basis by being misgendered, the, the downstream from these things, there are actual economic consequences. Now, obviously, we always have to prioritize economic issues, but many of these are not mutually exclusive. And in 2022, you're not going to be able to organize a union or, or have any kind of real world worker organization without embracing these so-called or engaging with these so-called culture war issues. So in no universe are they somehow separate from material or economic issues. That is a false 
binary created by pundits and media who still operate under this playbook of, well, who can we assist a soldier instead of moving, providing people with better healthcare, jobs, opportunities, higher wages? We need to kind of win over these purple county, upwardly mobile white voters. So who are we going to fuck over this midterm election? Because we need to go pick off some bigots and try to outflank them from the right, because outflanking from the left is simply not really an option. And so much of this has to do with confusing effective right-wing messaging with what the issues are actually about. And so a culture war issue could be something like the Dr. Seuss estate, you know, no longer selling books like And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street because of the racist stereotyping in it, or things like, uh, you know, Pepe Le Pew being left out of Space Jam 2 or Big Bird on Sesame Street wearing a mask during a global pandemic. These things have entry points through culture, but are not actually culture wars because they speak to larger issues. There are issues of what narratives are being portrayed about entire communities, about racism, about our history, about public health. And so even if the entry point is something quote unquote cultural, like Sesame Street or Mr. Potato Head, the idea that these are purely culture wars just does right-wing messaging for it, right? It kind of carries water for the messages that the right is putting forward in terms of how to discredit entire issues as being frivolous, being unimportant, being silly, having gone too far. Things have gone too far. It's like the anti-PC police all over again. But framing it as culture war issues does such a disservice to what the issues are actually about and really is all about right-wing framing and messaging, not about the issues themselves. Right. Because for the left, it's seen as something that can go on the chopping block. And for the right, it's a mere kind of cultural neurosis brought about by a changing country. It's not a vector of hate. Right. That will do it for this episode of Citations Needed. Thank you all for listening. Of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at Citations Pod, Facebook, Citations Needed, and become a supporter of our work through patreon.com slash citations needed podcast. All your support through Patreon is incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener funded. And as always, a very special shout out goes to our critic level supporters on Patreon. They include... Aaron Durbin, Blake Bunell, Lorenzo Mitchell, Stephen Osborne, Morgan Green Hopkins, Chris Reese, Corporate Zombie, Daniel Sweat, Eric Joyner, Buzz Among Us, Scared Computer, D.L. Singfield, J.M. Geralt, Chris Vincent, Nigel Kirby, Scott Roth, Nicholas Hausen, Tom Donnelly, Black Peggy Hill, Joe Wengert, Steely Dan Halen, Douglas, Danger Manley, Green New Neil, Where's Casey, Mr. Honeycrisp, Brickshop Audio, Justin Harper, Max Wilsey, J.D., Daniel Chavez, Supple Old Man, No Bueno, Esther Notorious EBG, Bedoya Gonzalez, Gwendolyn Shimka, David Hanemeyer Hansen, B, Chris Sarah, John Owens, Ben Lazar, Joe Schmo, Arid Zitrin, Eric Knight, James Michaela, Elizabeth Heather Redacted, Greg Westneat, Drew Johnson, Max Belanger, David Bettner, Brendan O'Connor, Ultra Miraculous, Porter Shut, Stinky Pete, Sturm Wyvern, Zachary Henson, Zappo, Darren Brady, Trazdat, Josh Derlin, Bruce Lee, Cash Miracle, Mike Lewis, Arachno Cinemondicalist, Zenia Zadvornik, Shockfist Weedlord, and of course, Computer Scare. I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. Citations Needed is produced by Florence Borough Adams. Associate producer is Julianne Tweeten. Production assistant is Trenda Lightburn. Newsletter by Marco Cardellano. Transcriptions are by Morgan McCasland. The music is by Granddaddy. Thanks for listening again, everyone. We'll catch you next time.